Uh, for those who know, my name is James. I'm one of the, the pastors here. If you're new here, it's great to have you guys with us. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us. Uh, so imagine if you could have the greatest expert in the world teach you how to do what they do. So for example, if your passion is basketball, imagine if you could have Stephon Curry give you private lessons and teach you how to shoot a basketball. Or imagine if you, if you love cooking and you could have Gordon Ramsay or, or Julia Childs give you private lessons on how to cook. Or maybe you love playing the guitar and you could have Jimmy Page teach you how to do the guitar, the greatest of all time or one of the greatest. Or maybe you love acting. And so imagine if you could have the great Steven Seagal teach you how to act, right? Or, or maybe if you're under 40, you could have maybe Vin Diesel or Keanu Reeves teach you that incredible method acting of how to get into that amazing character. Okay, maybe the first few are real, but um, this is the situation of the disciples, though, as they found themselves in, and it's the only time it's recorded in Scripture where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them something. And I mean, if you could ask Jesus just one question to teach you how to do something, what would you ask him? I mean, possibly maybe to heal the sick, to, to raise the dead. Jesus, how do you walk on water? Or Jesus, how do you have perfect intimacy with your Father? I, I'd love for you to teach me to do that. Well, the disciples could have asked any of those questions. They spent three years at his side, and there's one specific question that's recorded they ask him. It's recorded in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, and it's like this. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Why would that be the question? Of all the things, <clears throat> why not how to heal or walk on water or raise the dead or forgive sins? Why? Because the disciples lived with Jesus. They saw him day in and day out. They saw everything they did, he did, and they saw that it was his relationship with his father and his constant life of prayer that was different from anything that they had seen. It was the engine that powered all the other stuff. They knew it was rooted in his life of prayer. Everything he did was rooted in his prayer life. And so they saw this incredible life between the father and the son, and they said, teach us how to do that. And so Jesus responds to that question. He gives them a model to pray. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And as we continue this series on prayer over the next number of weeks, each week we're going to look at a different prayer practice. And it's going to be centered, so now we're kind of moving to the practicing prayer part of this series. And each week's going to be a different practice. You'll see there's, there's handouts in all your chairs, the same things available online under messages or sermons and sermon resources. You can find the discussion questions, the same thing. And each week we're going to look at a different practice to kind of really be emphasizing that week. And we're to start here with Jesus saying, or the disciples saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And the condensed version is found in Luke chapter 11, but the fuller version is found in Matthew 6. And so we're to look at that this morning. And so say it with me. Chapter 6, verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debt as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Again, Luke has the condensed version of that same prayer where it's just the first line of each of those requests, and a couple of the words are changed. But 
And some of you actually may be used to seeing it. It was hard to say that without the doxology at the end. That doxology actually comes from First Chronicles chapter 29. And the reason it's not included is it most likely was added later as a nice doxology to it. That's why most translations you'll see don't include it. It's in the footnotes. It's still beautiful. It's good. It's right from Scripture. But it's not actually likely part of, most scholars would say, part of, of, of that prayer of Jesus at that time. So we call, you can still say it, it's wonderful. Nothing wrong with saying it. Just that's likely not what he said at that time. That time. So... Um, so we call this the Lord's Prayer, but it really should be called the Disciples' Prayer. Because Jesus likely never prayed this prayer exactly unless he only did it in the corporate sense. Why? Because it says in the middle of it, forgive us for our sins, right? And Jesus didn't need to pray that part. And again, only if he prayed it corporately. Because I've shared before, the true Lord's Prayer isn't found here in Matthew or Luke. It's found in the book of John in chapter 17 really 14 through 17. We did a whole series on that last spring, but John 17 is the true Lord's prayer, the prayer that only Jesus prays as he prays for all of us today. And, but this prayer, the Lord's prayer is prayed more than anything else in all of scripture. Every day, hundreds of millions of times, believers across the world pray this prayer, especially amongst mainline denominations and Catholics and others. But for some reason, this prayer is often overlooked in Protestant evangelical circles frequently. You know, growing up, I rarely prayed this prayer. Now, I, I knew it, and sometimes I would recite it. And I emphasize recite, because it was usually a regurgitation of words I had memorized as a kid. And it was, never, it was rarely ever done as an actual prayer. It was more of just regurgitating those words and, and, and just repeating the things that I had heard. And because this verse, these verses, this prayer to me felt like kind of stale. It felt like a beginner's prayer. It felt like training wheels for prayer. And in my head, growing up, I had associated pre-written prayers as stale or inauthentic. To me, it had to be spontaneous and, and my own words to feel spiritual or mature or authentic. Praying someone else's words just felt kind of dry and, and unspiritual. Kind of like giving my wife a card from Hallmark and just signing my name at the end of some mushy, beautiful poem about how great she is. It just felt, I don't know, like disingenuous, just kind of like handing that. And then she's left wanting, like, what are your words? Like, why are you giving me someone else's words? That's kind of how it felt to me when I was growing up praying pre-written prayers. Now, curiously, how many of you grew up that way, that pre-written prayers were kind of this stale, inauthentic idea? Anyone else here? Is it just me? Okay, many, many of us. And I felt, that, you know, I could start here but then I would graduate on to more mature prayers, prayers that I would step out and I've matured and moved beyond that stage. But I want to be honest, I was so wrong. Almost like I rejected exactly what Jesus was telling us as disciples to do. Jesus himself called for his disciples to pray, who had spent three years with him, to pray this exact prayer, to say these words. I love how N.T. Wright describes this prayer. He says, the Lord's Prayer can be like a gift that you give a new Christian. It's kind of like giving a baby gift, like a, a, a new onesie to a baby. It fits perfectly at that age, and it's perfect to start with. But then he says that as we grow, so does the prayer. It becomes like a fully matured suit that there's always more room to grow into, one that we will never outgrow this side of eternity. It will keep maturing with us and growing with us. We, we can't outgrow this prayer. And it wasn't until a decade ago that I began to regularly pray this prayer. And what's kind of funny to me is that I had grown up and for 25 years of following Jesus, and by that point, had spent 15 years as part of a worldwide missions organization that we were devoted to prayer. We had prayer weekends and prayer days. I mean, I regularly spent hours and hours in extended times of prayer, and it was a significant part of my life and my ministry was prayer. And yet, somehow, 
I, I didn't take Jesus seriously. I felt I had matured beyond the simplicity of this prayer. I saw that I had grown out of this baby onesie of the Lord's Prayer and had moved on to some more mature suit that I had grown into. But yet not once, but twice, Jesus tells his disciples, pray like this. And while Matthew says, pray in this manner or in this way, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, if you read the original Greek, he literally says, say or recite these words. It's not vague at all. It's not in this way. It's literally pray these words. And so today, as we're talking about practicing prayers, we're talking about, you know, how do we actually pray and engage in practices? There's no better place to start than the model Jesus gives us when he says, pray like this. And so this is not just some ritual. I'm not saying everyone has to pray these exact words every single day or repeat these words. Remember, the disciples, they're asking this question of Jesus because they saw the life in Jesus and the life they had with his father. And so they see the way he's so intimately connected to the father. And they're saying, teach us how to do that. Not teach us how to repeat a prayer to have extra power or extra authority. They're looking at the life that he has with his father and says, we want that. Teach us, how do you do that, Jesus? And Jesus gives them this prayer. And Jesus shares that this way of praying with them, this model, and it comes out of Jesus' own intimacy and life with his father. So remember, the disciples saw that life and they wanted what Jesus had. And this is Jesus' answer. Here's how you pray. As the scholar N.T. Wright says, he says this, he says, The Lord's Prayer is an invitation to share in the prayer life of Jesus himself. You hear that? The Lord's Prayer is literally Jesus inviting us in to his own life of prayer. The Son, Jesus, is inviting his followers to share the intimacy of his own life with his Father. Have you ever seen it that way? We're being invited into this private prayer time with his father and jesus saying here is how i pray enter in to the way that i do this and so my hope today is that whether you've never prayed this prayer before or if you pray it 10 times a day you'll see a greater beauty in it than you've ever seen before and you will integrate it as part of the practice of sharing in jesus's prayer life with his father and his intimacy that he has with his father amen all right so this prayer is broken up into two sections each is kind of like a poem that, with multiple stanzas or verses in it. It begins with who we are addressing, so it begins with our Father in heaven. And then it's going to give three directions or three prayers directed towards God and His holiness. So you get, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and then your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And after that, it switches to praying not just to God, but then praying for ourselves. And, and in that case, notice how this is a corporate prayer, how the pronouns go to from you to we, our, and us. So Jesus prays, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven those who have debtors. Deliver, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Now notice that you, that from the you, us and ours. So we'll put this up there. See, the first one has our, your name, your kingdom, your will be done. Right? Whereas the second one has give us our daily bread, us our debts, we our debtors, us not in temptation and save us from the evil one. So the prayer begins by centering the focus upon God and his kingdom, and then it moves to our own circumstances. That's kind of the transition in this prayer. And then it hits, after talking about his kingdom, kind of three main areas of praying for daily bread, praying for forgiveness, and praying for deliverance from temptation. And I know there's many of you may go, I know, I know, I know, yeah, 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 I've been praying this prayer since I was a kid, and I get that. 
many of us have been doing that for a long time, and I just want to start with the words from Dr. Kent, uh, Kent Hughes. He's a great scholar, and in his introduction to his commentary on this prayer, he says this. He says, have we really seen or heard the Lord's Prayer? Perhaps we need to see it anew. Not so much to discover new truth, but to see the old truth in a new way. Then we will be delivered from merely saying it or reciting the Lord's Prayer. And that's my hope today, that even if you prayed it a thousand times, may we see this old truth in a new light today. So each week for the next few weeks, as I said, each week we're going to emphasize a different form of prayer, a practice that we'll be able to do as a body throughout the week. Uh, and there's stacks of paper on your chairs, there's some at the doors, you can get them online. But, and I'm not saying we must recite this prayer and say these exact words each time that we go to pray. That's not what it is. This is, but it's a model of prayer. I love how the scholar Dr. Garland puts it. He says, Jesus intends the model of the Lord's Prayer to function like a tuning fork or a pitch pipe by which disciples can measure whether their prayers are in the right pitch. Does that make sense? It's a way of, of tuning in. It's a way of saying, am I moving in this direction or is it all about me? Am I truly moving in the right way? And so it's a beautiful model from which to follow. So let's jump in. Someday I want to come back to a whole series just on this prayer, but for now we're just going to hit the highlights. And so Jesus begins in verse 9 and says, This then is how you should pray, Our Father in heaven. Now we can spend the whole sermon here right on those two words, Our Father, because that's just intense of what that means, that right from the first, this is how Jesus referred to his Father God, as the Aramaic word he used was Abba, Abba, Father. And that Aramaic word Abba has the connotation of deep intimacy, and nearness, of incredible closeness, but yet it also carries at the same time a submission and obedience within it. And so Jesus invites his disciples into his life with the Father. He shares that sonship with them with this prayer. Jesus was strange that this was the primary way he addressed God. No one else primarily addressed God as Father, let alone as Abba. And now he says, disciples, you too are to address him this way as well. I invite you into this. And he's not the only one. Paul says this. Romans chapter 8, he says it multiple times. But in Romans 8, 15, Paul says, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So now you are kids of God because of the Holy Spirit. And by him, we now cry, Abba, Father. So Jesus invites us into this life with God. He teaches his disciples to pray with the same intimacy that he has with his Father. Do we get that? The same intimacy. We are to pray in the same way. He teaches them that they're no longer praying to a distant, blimp-like God who is out there and not near and far away, but personal and intimate. Now, there are many who have translated this word Abba and, Abba and just say, you know, they call it Daddy is the most modern translation. And that's partly true, but that's not the greatest translation because Daddy oftentimes just emphasizes that emotional response. But in, in here, it's more like my dearest father, my dearest daddy. But it has also, and it contains an idea of submission and obedience within it. It's, it's, it's not just an emotional feeling. It's not just a closeness. But there is a reverence that comes with this as well. N.T. Wright speaks about this so beautifully. And in my favorite book you can get on the Lord's Prayer that I've read of all of them, and it's highly recommended. It's called The Lord and His Prayer by N.T. Wright. You can pick up a used copy for a few bucks on, on eBay or somewhere else, or on Walmart or wherever it is. Um, the whole thing is like 85 pages. I think you read the whole thing in an hour. I cannot recommend this enough, especially the short chapters. Just read like a chapter a day or a week and just focus on that one section of the prayer. It's absolutely incredible. It'll blow your mind as far as breaking the, the, the prayer down and seeing it better. But he writes this about Father. He says, that's why calling God Father is the great act of faith, of holy boldness, of risk. 
He's saying our father isn't just the boldness of walking in the presence of the living and almighty God and saying, hi, daddy. It is the boldness, the sheer total risk of saying quietly, please, may I too be considered an apprentice son. It means signing on for the kingdom of God. By saying our father, we are joining in with Jesus, right? It's so much more than just saying, hey, daddy, but it's, it's joining in. It's not, act, it's not passive, but it's active. So as we pray, our father, we are joining in with Jesus. We are uniting to him as his brother, calling out our father, joining in with his plans. Amen? I love that. So next we pray, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So he's in heaven, he's over all things, and it says, hallowed be your name, to make holier, and that means to, to honor him or to, make, to, to, to declare him holy. So when we declare his holiness, we declare his righteousness, and we glorify him, and we stand in, in reverent awe before him. And I love this because first we call him Abba. We call him dearest father or Lord. We have this deep, intimate connection with the first part, right? And then next line is we revert, revere him as perfect and holy. Do you see how those things go together here? On its own, to revere him as perfect and holy and say hallowed, that almost makes God feel distant in some ways, right? Kind of like the Old Testament when we speak of the holiness of God and no one could even look upon him. But it immediately follows calling him Abba. It immediately follows the intimacy, the nearness of that. And so these things are joined together. The first line makes you want to jump in his lap and wrap your arms around him and give a big old hug. The next line makes you want to bow down to the ground with your head to the floor in reverent awe of worship saying, I'm not worthy. And he combines those two things. In fact, the word most commonly used for worship in Scripture, the literal meaning of that word is to bow, to touch one's forehead to the ground in worship, to bow down. And God, he, or Jesus, he combines these two things together as we approach the Father. Is that how we approach God every time we pray? With this nearness of intimacy, of Abba, jump in his lap, but at the same time, this reverent awe of a holy God. Are we in reverent awe before him with our hands wrapped around his neck? It's such a beautiful picture, in my opinion. You know, we could just stop here, because that alone is radical enough to radically impact a prayer life, but there's so much more that I want to be able to get to. So the next is my favorite part of this prayer. It's the part I pray more than any other prayer I've ever prayed, and that's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I grew up as a Christian, I somehow had the understanding that the goal of a Christian is to get off this planet and get to heaven, right? That that was our primary goal, that true life would only be found once we're off this planet and we get to heaven, that this is more like a proving ground that we live here just to get to heaven. Yet that's not what scripture says. and It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says life can actually be found here. How? As we increasingly see his kingdom come in our lives, in the lives of the, those around us and in the world. God is a God of restoration. He isn't done. And God says that we are to pray not for us to get into heaven, but for heaven to get into us. Right? That's the way Jesus tells us to pray. Not for us to depart to be in heaven, but for heaven to get into us. For heaven to get into us through our lives and to get into our world and get into our family and our neighbors, into us and through us into this world. That is to be our prayer. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now we need a whole series to break down what it means for the, the kingdom of heaven. 
and it will do that at some point, but this is not a passive prayer. Praying your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven is a prayer of incarnation. It means it must be lived out in our lives in flesh and blood. We can't pray this prayer with folded hands and, and then just sit back and wait for God to do the work. This is a prayer we pray to be carried out through us and through our lives. God's kingdom come, his will be done here in Mill Creek as it is in heaven, in my life as in heaven, in my neighborhood as it is in heaven, through my life, through my works, through my action, through my family. This is not a spectator prayer. It's not prayed from the sidelines as we cheer team Jesus on while we sip our hot chocolate or, or, or sip a coffee or something like that at a distance. No, this is a, a prayer that we pray with our hands dirty, with our jersey soiled with blood and sweat and tears from being in the game and in the battle and in the trenches with him as we actively co-partner with him and co-create with God as we engage in his heaven coming to earth as it is in heaven. Right? Saying, oh Lord, align my heart to yours and to your ways. Show me where I'm consumed with my own desires and consumed with pursuing my own kingdom and not your kingdom. God, but change my heart to be more like your heart. We want your kingdom to come, not mine. Your will to be done, not mine. Change me, Lord. And praying that personally over our lives, but also corporately. It's over our. We pray it corporately over any areas of injustice around where society has walked away from the ways of Jesus and engaging our hearts where we have apathy and hardness to the injustice that lays around us. There's no greater prayer to pray than this. Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in prayer. This is the prayer that I pray all throughout the day. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. And this is basically when I say, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? This is the prayer I'm praying. It's your kingdom come. I want to align with your kingdom, your ways, your will right now. I try to pray this a hundred times a day if I can. It's just whenever it's out, I'm doing whatever I'm meeting with someone, it's sitting out, Lord, your will, your ways, not mine. What are you doing right now, Lord Jesus? But always with the expectation that I'm an active participant in it. It's not a passive prayer. In fact, it's a really dangerous prayer to pray. And this is my greatest prayer for us as Northview. Lord, do your will through us. May we not build a kingdom of Northview or a kingdom of Mill Creek, but your kingdom, Lord. Your will, your ways, transform us, Lord. May this never be about our desires. As a pastor, may it never be about my desires or, or my vision or my interest in having more people or more baptism or anything else, but your kingdom and your ways and yours alone, Lord Jesus. Amen? You know, there's, there's so much here, but there's another few verses. We only have so much time. And uh, next, Jesus says in verse 11, he says, Give us today our daily bread. When you think of daily bread, what Old Testament story might you think of that was people receiving bread daily? Right? It'd be the manna in the wilderness. What a crazy story that is where God provides. And does anyone know what the word manna actually means? What? Yeah, what? It means what is it? Like you can play one of those old Abbott Costello games with it. It literally means what? In fact, or what is it? They know what to call it. So they literally called it what? It's just weird. I had a friend who named their kid uh, manna which I thought was hilarious because every time you call their names, you're basically saying, what is it? Right? I just think that's awesome. Every time, what is it? Get over here. What? Get over here. I think that's awesome. Uh, I don't recommend it, but it, I think it's awesome. But <laughs> daily manna 
was the way that God met their daily needs. He emphasized to them that you only get what you need for the day and nothing else, your daily sustenance. It would rot if they tried to keep it an extra day. So God was teaching them daily dependence upon him. And this is why this is referring to praying, Lord, pray for our daily needs, our daily bread. Yet not everyone was in deep need at that time. Matthew, the tax collector, was sitting there while he was talking, who had a ton of money. And so it wasn't just about their own needs either, because notice the pronoun here is not my daily bread, but what? Our daily bread. It's a corporate prayer for the body. And that means for those around them who don't have enough for daily sustenance, who don't have shelter or food or other things that they need. He's saying this is something that we pray for one another. And so in this body, most of you, I assume, have enough to eat today. And if you don't, please let us know. I know there's some struggling. We have a family care fund. People here are generous. We never want anyone to not be able to eat that's here, have what they need, or be able to pay a bill. We will help you, and we as a body will come around. This is a very generous body. And so whenever I pray for, those, for this prayer, I specifically direct it towards not just my own life, but those who are struggling around. For our neighbors and those I know who are struggling here locally and beyond that, and it leads me to generosity towards others. Remember, everything in this prayer is not just private. It is all corporate. It is our as a body. But I also can't help praying for my own family. And I mean, for daily sessions for me, is just one of our, my daily prayers. Lord, do the miracle and provide us a home sometime that we don't just rent, but we can own and have a place here. And I pray the same over our church. Lord, provide the funds that we need. Can we rent this place? That we could own a place or own our own place, that we wouldn't be... be, be dependent upon others who are renting in their, their desires. So we pray it corporately and individually for our daily bread. And I'm going to have to, the last two I'm going to hit rather briefly, but which is so bad because there's so much depth to plumb here. But next Jesus says in the next verse, he says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now there's so much here. So first the word for debts here is the same word that can be translated as transgressions or trespasses or sins. In fact, in Luke, he actually uses the direct word for sin. So we know that's what Jesus is intending in this passage. But again, in that time, it also meant debts because people were in bondage and in slavery all the time. He's saying as believers, we must release people from their debts, actual debts. And so that's very relevant for any of us to have people that owe us money. Um, But this is a very freeing passage because what Jesus is saying is he expects his disciples to be daily praying for forgiveness. Why is that freeing? Because Jesus did not expect his disciples to live a life of perfect, sinless perfection. It's right here in the prayer. He expects his disciples to sin. Not that that's a free card, get out of jail free card, like go run and do your own thing and sow your wild oats, some run spring kind of thing. But no, this is actually saying, but he knows this is part of life. So it's a daily rhythm to be praying and asking God for forgiveness. That's beautiful and freeing. And know this beautiful reality, we should be regularly repenting and asking forgiveness and that it is there and it is offered. But the next line is the one I want to emphasize because this is one of the most incredible statements in this prayer. One of the most radical and the hardest of all, he says, forgive us, Lord, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us or sinned against us. Jesus links being forgiven to forgiving those who have harmed us. Now, it begins with God. It doesn't begin with us forgiving. He forgives us, but then we are expected to take that forgiveness and extend it to those who have harmed us. And it goes beyond that because if taken seriously, this gets really hard what he says next. You know, back in the 300s, St. Augustine was referring to this, and he called this passage of the Lord's Prayer the terrible petition. Why does he call it that? Because if we pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and we pray it with an unforgiving heart, do you realize what you're actually praying? You're praying that God would not forgive you. You get that? 
in essence, if you're praying this with unforgiveness, we are praying, Lord, forgive me to the same degree that you forgive other, that I forgive others. You are praying for God not to forgive you if there's unforgiveness. And if that seems harsh, look at the next, literally the next verse. Jesus says this in the prayer. He says, verse 14, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly father will forgive you. Amen. 15, but if you refuse to forgive others, your father will not forgive your sins. Ouch. There's a story of the great John Wesley, the incredible revivalist, when he served as a missionary to the American colonies years ago. He had a difficult time with a General James um, uh, Oglethorpe. He was, General Oglethorpe was the, the guy who founded the colony of Georgia at that time. He was meeting with them, and the general was known for pride and harshness. And he was arguing with him, and one time the general declared, I never forgive, and I will never forgive. And John Wesley looked at him, and he said, Okay, sir, then I pray that you never sin. Right? Do you get it? The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon said very bluntly, unless you have forgiven others, you read your own death warrant when you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Now, I think that's taking a little too far. But Jesus is saying that the heart of this is, in, if we are unwilling to forgive others, our hearts will remain closed to receive his forgiveness. That's how I take it, not the way that Spurgeon did. I think Garland puts it beautifully, the one I quoted before. He says, a forgiving spirit is the outstretched hand by which we grasp God's forgiveness. But hear this, when the hand is closed tightly into a fist, meaning we do not forgive, we have unforgiveness in our heart, it can receive nothing. Right? We don't have a heart of forgiveness. Our hand is tightly grasped and we can't actually receive it. He says, being forgiven, and here he's going to quote William Manson in the Moffat commentary from back 100 years ago, and he says, being forgiving is not the ground on which God bestows forgiveness, but the ground on which man can receive forgiveness. So this is not a threat from Jesus, but it's an invitation. An invitation that as we forgive, our hearts are more pliable and ready and open to receive forgiveness. Unforgiveness is like a tightly held fist in our hearts that hardens us and prevents us from being able to receive it as well. I love that picture. So as we pray the Lord's Prayer, this is powerful and it's dangerous. These aren't just empty words we recite or say, but we are uniting ourselves to Jesus when we pray. We are partnering with Him and we're identifying with Him in word and in deed. And so lastly, Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so first, just to be clear, does God lead us into temptation? Straight answer, no, right? As Christians, we should know James chapter one, verse 13, have this memorized. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, right? There is no way in which God tempts us to sin. So that doesn't happen. But the word here for temptation is not only referring to sin, it also refers to trials and, and that type of a temptation. And so does scripture ever show that Jesus was tempted? Yes, actually a clear couple times. The first one in the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days of temptation. And it wasn't about sin. It was about a trial uh, that he needed to go through, that even God was involved with, that would allow him to grow and help him to become the person that he would become. It was necessary for him to be able to do the ministry that he did. And there's a clear second time in the Garden of Gethsemane 
where Jesus is tempted. He begs God, take this cup from me. I do not want to go to the cross. And he has a massive temptation in that moment. So brilliantly illustrated in the Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that or saw it 10 years ago with Jesus stomping on the snake, that's extra added, but it, it emphasizes this point, that temptation there. Where Jesus, it's a trial. It's not about sin, but he doesn't want to go through it. And he prays for God to remove it. And what happens? God actually doesn't in that case. And so we can pray just as Jesus did for these cups of trials or temptations to be taken from us. And it doesn't mean it will always end, but God tells us to pray for that. And we're also to pray that the plans of the enemy may fall or fail. When it translates, deliver us from evil, one, many translations would just say evil. It's beyond that. It's not just Satan, but all of his works. And so we are to pray, Lord, help us to stand in the midst of the attacks of the enemy. Praying that our minds would not move towards lust or greed, or that praying we have the courage to not join our friends in being stupid and going and drunk or high, or we pray we have the power to pray to, to speak words of encouragement and life rather than gossip and, and anger and giving the devil a foothold in our lives. We pray for deliverance, and again, it's not passive. Right? So often our prayers are just passive. This is not passive. I don't pray, God, deliver me from evil as I just scroll on my phone through endless sexually suggestive videos or, or straight up porn and say, Lord, deliver me from evil. I don't stick my hand in a fire and say, oh, Lord, please don't let my hand burn. Right? But yet that's what we do so often. This is an active prayer that we are involved in. And this goes back to Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Shape me. I want to walk in your ways. I want to become more like you. Amen. This is so much more that, that we can talk about in this, but it, it's, it's so much more than just praying a prayer or just reciting words. It's the life of Jesus. And again, I cannot recommend enough. Go get yourself a copy of this and slowly go through it. And it doesn't mean we just recite it word for word. It doesn't mean we recite it every day. There's incredible beauty in, in stream of consciousness prayers of just, you know, whatever thoughts are going on, just, just reflecting those to God and directing our thoughts to him. But the truth is, in those kind of prayers, often our minds just wander in different directions. And Jesus knew that. So as we take times of solitude with him, and hopefully we do that, we take times of solitude with him. I know of no greater practice than those solitudes to pray out the prayer that Jesus literally told us to pray. I mean, what a shocker. Jesus was right. It's actually a good thing to do. C.S. Lewis, in talking about this idea of pre-written prayers, in his kind of lesser-known book called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer, he says that we often avoid ready-made prayers, thinking that they're not genuine, but instead we then have, he says, our minds spread into wide and shallow puddles of prayer. I love that that, that, that illustration. Prayers that lack depth and lack meaning. And so often my prayers move that way, and it's not that they're wrong, But does anyone else recognize you often just pray like shallow puddle prayers, just wide, meandering, no depth to them, and it's just kind of going whatever the stream of conscience. There's nothing wrong with that. I still do that all throughout the day. But the Lord's Prayer is like an anchor to root us deep into the truth of Scripture and follow the model that Jesus gave us to enter into his life with the Father. It honestly blows my mind that for most of my life I didn't pray this. Like, how obvious is this in Scripture? He literally tells us to do it. I somehow thought that just praying these prayers over and over again would be like babbling, you know? Didn't Jesus command us? And remember that? Like, doesn't Jesus somewhere say, don't just pray the same words over and over again and babble those words, that that's actually of no value? You're right, he did. Do you know where he said that? Literally the verse before this verse, 
right? Matthew chapter six, verse seven, right before he gives the Lord's prayer, he says, and then you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows that you need before you ask it. Verse nine, this then is how you should pray. Our father who is in heaven. Jesus says, don't pray meaningless prayers of repetition. Instead, pray this prayer. Pray like this. Not that we must repeat it exactly. It's more like the frame of a house or a good outline to follow, as Garland called it, you know, like that tuning fork that we can tell if our prayers are in tune to Jesus. And so this prayer is joining into Jesus' life with the Father entering into it. And it's not just sitting in his lap, but actively partnering with him in his work. And That's what I love so much about this. So as we pray this prayer with our minds and our hearts engaged, we are actively partnering with Jesus in his life, in his life of prayer to the Father and in his practice of bringing heaven to earth. I love how N.T. Wright puts it. I just want to actually read this out of here. <coughs> I'm extend section. It's just beautiful. He says, think of the Lord's Prayer like this. Jesus is the medical genius who discovered penicillin. We are doctors ourselves being cured by the medicine, now applying it to those who need it. Jesus is the musical genius who wrote the greatest oratorio of all time. We are the musicians captivated by his composition ourselves, who now perform it before a world full of loud noises. The kingdom did indeed come with Jesus, but it will fully come when the world is healed, when the whole creation finally joins in the song. But it must be Jesus' medicine. It must be Jesus' music. And the only way to be sure of that is to pray his prayer. He goes on, I used to think of this clause simply as a prayer of resignation. Thy will be done. With a shrug of the shoulders. I mean, what I want doesn't really matter too much. If, if God really wants to do something, I so, suppose I'll just put up with it. Anyone else feel that way? That might do if God were a remote, detached God. But it will not do for Isaiah's God. It won't do for Jesus. And it won't do for those who break bread and drink wine to remember Jesus and pray for the kingdom. No, this is a risky, crazy prayer of submission and commission. Or if you like, a prayer of subversion and conversion. It is the way we sign on in our turn for the work of the kingdom. It is the way we take the medicine ourselves so that we may be strong enough to administer it to others. It is the way we retune our instruments to play God's oratorio. For the world to sing. Is that not awesome? As we pray this prayer, we join with Jesus in playing his song to the world. I love that. So application this week. As a body, please take that paper, download online, and pray this prayer this week. Ideally every day, but if you can't do that, do it at least three times to get a few rounds of it in. And you can find that guide there, but... It's also in the boxes, it's in the back, and it's online. But next week, we're going to look at a different prayer. So this is for this week. And next week, we're actually going to look at David's prayer to the great shepherd in Psalm 23 and do something similar with that. But this week, I want us to lean into this prayer. Really lean into our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'd recommend, again, praying it every single day, not reciting it, not saying the Lord's Prayer, but actively participating with our hearts focused upon him, sitting in his lap, our arms around his neck, while posturing ourselves with our head bowed to the floor in honor and obedience and submission. Participating in it. That's the key thing. 
playing God's amazing song through our own lives and our own words, entering in and riffing on it like a jazz musician, going off and riffing off the original lines. Not just taking the medicine, but then delivering it to others and returning our life or retuning our life to this song. It's so beautiful. So we can pray it in many different ways. We can, the most common way is to pray just one phrase at a time. You know, our Father in heaven, and, and then you just pray after that. God, thank you that you are our Father. You called us to be your children. Thank you for what a gift it is that we get to be your kids and live with you and, and be with you, Father. And you, you just pray that out, and then you go on to the next line after that. And then the next line after that. In fact, we're going to do that here in a second. Another way, if you don't have the time for the whole thing in five or six minutes, is just take one line of it today. And so today, just pray, our Father in heaven, and pray for a minute into that, and then tomorrow, take the next, next line, right? Who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And tomorrow, pray, hallowed be your name. And, and on a weekly basis, you could just kind of go through the prayer that way. Or you can just pray the whole thing out each morning or each night as you prayerfully read it as a family. This is what we do every night before bed with our kids as we pray through this prayer. Regardless of which form, though, may we join with Jesus as we pray the prayer. May we enter into his life as we do it. And so as we finish, I want to pray this prayer again. I want to do it with us. So, so uh, this is kind of the way I pray it. Usually it takes me about five minutes, sometimes 10, sometimes 15. Just depends on how much stuff kind of gets kicked up as I pray it. Sometimes there's more angst or more anxiety, or sometimes I realize there's some disordered desires going on I got to lean into. But for the most part, this is kind of how I do it. And so I just want to pray it with you guys. You're welcome to pray with me. Don't be weirded out by the fact of me just using other examples. I just want to pray this as a demonstration, but also just a real prayer. You can kind of pray it on your own as we go through this. And this is how I want to finish this morning is just praying this out. All right. Let's pray. Start with the first line. Our Father who is in heaven. Abba. Father. Lord, it's strange to pray those words, Jesus, because those are literally the same sounds that echoed out of your lips 2,000 years ago as you addressed your Father. Thank you for inviting us into your relationship, Jesus. And so, Father, we come to you and we say we adore you. Thank you that we get to be your children. And I stand here clean and pure because of who you are. What a joy it is to serve you and to be known by you and to love you, Lord. Oh, Lord, our Father. Hallowed be your name, Lord. In the midst of the nearness and the intimacy, Lord, you so holy and righteous and good. I live in reverent awe of you, Father. And may you continue to point my eyes upward when I'm overwhelmed with the circumstances of life. May I see you in your power and your beauty and your glory and your holiness, Lord Jesus. We, doubt, we bow down before you in worship, Lord. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we long for you to bring your kingdom to earth. We don't just want to get into heaven. We want heaven to get into us, Lord Jesus. Shape us, mold us, Lord, more into your ways and your will. Father, I don't want to be a bystander. I want to be an active participant. Show me where there is injustice around me that I'm blind to, Lord. 
that I can join you in, in seeing your kingdom come to earth. Show me in the areas of my life where there's disordered desires, where there's brokenness that is causing pain to myself or to others, Lord. I want my life to conform to your will and your ways. Show me in my neighbor, lives of my neighbors where I can love and serve more, more intentionally with greater beauty and service and honor you, Lord Jesus. I want your kingdom to come, Lord, not mine. Let us be part of bringing your light and your grace to the world, Lord Jesus. And give us this day our daily bread, Lord. Father, may you provide what we need. I know I have my own anxieties, Lord, of provision and finances, or housing for myself, or housing long-term for the church, Lord. And we bring those before you. I, I hand those to you, Jesus. But also for all those that are across the street here who are living in Section 8 housing and, and levels of poverty and the homeless around us, Lord. I, I pray for our relationship with, with, with Woodside Elementary, God. May you give us greater favor that we can be able to enter into the homes of those who are hurting, Lord. May you give us greater access to the neighbors around here who are deeply hurting, Lord. Give us greater favor that we as a body can be genuinely serving the needs of the poor and the hurting and the hungry that are right around us, Lord. Give us favor and give us wisdom to not step on that or to break it down of overzealousness, Lord Jesus. For those that have excess, Lord, move our hearts towards generosity, towards others, and those that don't have much, may you continue to keep our hearts filled with generosity with the little that we have. And Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus, where we have fallen short of your glory, where we have walked in sin and our disordered desires have taken over, Lord, forgive us. Show us those areas of our life that are out of order with you, Lord. And as we receive your forgiveness, Lord, empower us to extend it to others. Wherever there is pain, wherever there is harm, Lord, help us to extend forgiveness. That our hands do not become tightly grasped, but are open to give, Lord Jesus, and to receive. Where there's deep abuse and significant painful harm, Lord, may you help us to walk the path of healing. And not just empty statements, Lord. I know it could take years, Lord, but may you put us on that path. But Lord, break our hearts. Make them soft where they have hardened. Break down dividing walls of resentment towards family or ex-family. Show us where there's still unforgiveness in our heart, Lord. Where there is hardness, Jesus. And lastly, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus, keep our feet on your path and your ways on your grace and your strength. And where Satan has tried to take us out, Father, may you protect us, strengthen us, and defeat any of his attacks. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Worship team, you're welcome to come on up. And so, Lord, as we pray that, Father, I just thank you that you invite us in. This prayer is not a heavy prayer. It's an invitation of life. It's you offering us your medicine and saying, take this and give it to others. It's you playing your amazing composition and saying, here's an instrument, learn to play. And play it and bless others. Tune your life to this song. So Jesus, empower us to do that. For those who have prayed it many times or repeated it many times, Lord, may we see it anew, afresh. And may we encounter you as we walk in your ways. Thank you, Jesus.